Hey there, I'm Sarah K. Hoffman, a holistic health coach and chief gutsy of a gutsygirl.com. I went from bloated, gassy, and infertile to living my best life with a strong microbiome and a very full house. On this show, no topic is too stinky to discuss and everything can be broken down into practical, digestible takeaways. So grab a cup of bone broth, veggie broth, or a soothing golden latte if you prefer, and come along as I show you how the number two might just be your new number one. Hello, and welcome to the A Gutsy Girl podcast. My name is Sarah K. Hoffman, aka A Gutsy Girl, and your host for this show. In case this is your first time hanging out on the show with me, welcome. I am the founder and chief gutsy of both agutsygirl.com and guthealingsupplements.com. For today's episode, episode 84, I brought on my newest, my latest friend, Andy, aka Andy the RD. Now, if you are new on Instagram, I want you to do me a favor, just quickly hit pause on this show, go to Instagram and follow him immediately. I know it kind of goes against the grain of all things a gutsy girl, but believe me, he is someone that you will absolutely want to follow. So you'll find him at A-N-D-Y-T-H-E-R-D, Andy the R-D. And the reason I'm such a fan of his is because not only is he very, very educational, but he is hilarious. He's absolutely hilarious. The spin that he puts on his content and the way that he makes educational posts funny and shareable is just classic. So go check him out and then come right back. Here is a little bit more about Andy DeSantis. Andy is a private practice dietitian and 11 times published author from Toronto, Canada. He graduated from the University of Toronto School of Public Health in 2014 and went on to work for Diabetes Canada before pursuing a private practice career fueled by his love for writing and social media. Andy thrives on pursuing knowledge in diverse areas of nutrition science, which is why you'll find him talking about everything from fatty liver disease to how often most people poop. When he isn't immersed in the world of nutrition, he is most likely instead in the world of soccer, where he is an avid fan, watcher, and player. Please welcome Andy to the show. Welcome to the A Gutsy Girl podcast, Andy. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. I am so excited. You know, it's funny. It's always, is it an oxymoron when I have men on the A Gutsy Girl podcast? I don't think so because that's funny. <laughs> I've had so many awesome men, like doctors and nutritionists and different people on this show. And I think you provide just like a different voice to the community that I truly appreciate. And um you are just such a joy and a delight to my Instagram feed. So I am so excited for this conversation. So let's just dive in. And I want you to just start by telling the audience about yourself as you are today, what you do, and you know, and anything else that might be pertinent for this conversation. Sure. Well, I am a, a private practice dietitian from Toronto, Canada, a writer and author. So I've written 11 books and I do pretty significant amount of writing for various platforms, some which you'll see on Instagram, some which I don't promote that I just kind of get paid for and I leave as is. 
And then I do various, uh, you know, various bits and bobs uh, of social media work. So I have a nice little variety in my workflow. And I have interest in, uh, let's say, a moderate to wide range of nutrition topics. I stay away from highly specialized topics that really specialists should focus on. But I've got a pretty broad interest, you know, including in gut health and on the gut microbiome, which I'm sure we're going to be discussing. And uh, yeah, I think that sums me up pretty well. So how did you get into this? Were you yourself sick or were you just always interested in food and lifestyle? What kind of schooling did you do? I'm just so curious as to your like how you ended up here. Yeah, well, you kind of got close there with the first statement. So I mean, growing up, so I'll, we'll go back just a, just a touch, you know, growing up, I wasn't really into nutrition, let's say in the least, which is a nice way to say, you know, I basically ate candy for lunch, which is not even a joke. So that ended me up in a situation where, you know, my health wasn't very good. It caused me a lot of issues. At some point, I realized that I had to right the ship. And that took me a long time to, to navigate the world of nutrition. But when I did, it greatly improved my life. And so it just clicked for me that I would love to fulfill that role for other people. So in a nutshell, that's why, you know, I pretty much dedicate my life to this. A bit cliche, but certainly true. And in terms of my, my schooling, I, you know, I have a master's degree from the University of Toronto in public health nutrition. Of course, I am a registered dietitian. And before I got into private practice, I was actually an employee at Diabetes Canada in the research and education department, which is where I got my first taste of creating content that affects larger groups of people. And I've always loved writing, to be honest, since I was a teenager. I used to write for magazines at a young, at a young age, as funny as that sounds. They weren't popular magazines, they're out of business now. But uh, I still used to write for them. And yeah, so so that that's more or less how I got here. Okay, so that actually leads perfectly into my next question. So you mentioned how you really like to write and you like that whole scene, the Instagram. So your Instagram account is not only highly educational, but it's also incredibly funny. I can't tell you how many times I'll be scrolling and I stop and I just laugh. And so I would love it if you could talk a little bit more about the why behind that sort of strategy on Instagram. This really has nothing to do with our topic today, which by the way, is all about the microbiome. But I do think that there are some Instagram accounts that have a really awesome way of connecting with people because they are educational, but they also bring something else to the table. And for you, it is humor. I think it just came naturally. I can't say that it was some sort of high level strategy that I was going to come up with, you know, clever jokes or, or things like that. And I think that at this point, I am on some level, I'm running out of ideas. I think I used a lot of my best stuff already. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I think for me, in my, in my daily life, you know, in my friend group, in my family, I am known as a bit of a joker. You know, I have decently quick wit. You know, some people might disagree if anyone's listening to this, funny enough. But yeah, I think it was just, it's all very natural. Writing came natural to me. You know, inquisitiveness in nutrition came naturally to me. Humor came naturally to me. And fortunately enough, a lightning in the bottle type of thing, I was able to kind of bring it all together in a meaningful way on social media. And yeah, it's grown to what it's become and it's a pleasure. Awesome. Okay, so all of that fun stuff and the writing and the social aside, you obviously know a ton. You have your master's degree and you really are dedicated to sharing all the information. And lately, and the reason why I really wanted to bring you on the show is I feel like you have been talking a little bit more about the gut microbiome. Your Instagram is very diverse. As you had said, you talk about bigger issues and all of that, but you do talk about the gut. And I thought you would be the perfect person just to kind of go through some of these things with the audience today. So we talk about the gut microbiome all the time, but can you explain 
in your own words, what it is and why the gut microbiome in particular is so important for overall health. If I'm speaking with my clients about the gut microbiome or if I'm writing about it for a general audience, I'm basically saying it is just the totality of the species of various microorganisms in the digestive tract. Some of them are beneficial, some of them might be less so. And, and how that shakes out has a massive role to play, like you said, in human health. And in terms of me exploring it and why it's so important for health, it's almost inevitable because no matter what condition I look into, because I've written on numerous conditions, diabetes, fatty liver disease, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more, there's always a connection to the gut microbiome because the state of one's microbiome dictates how they metabolize on some level carbohydrates, which is why it's related to diabetes, you know, the state of inflammation in their body, which is why it's related to fatty liver disease. And then the list goes on on obviously the state of their immune health, right? So everywhere you look, if you are, let's say, a competent practitioner who's keeping up with the latest research, you don't choose the microbiome, it chooses you. That's basically how I frame it. That's so true. It chooses you because unless you have your blinders on, it's everything leads back there. I can't stress enough how often we talk about the idea that the gut microbiome really starts and ends with digestion and the body. So like even when we're starting to think about food, the saliva produces enzymes that are then going to help break the food down and then obviously all the way until excretion. So it's so hard to ignore any piece of the body and or problem that's associated without thinking about the gut microbiome. That's absolutely true. And, and for me, because I'm in a fortunate position where I can spend a good deal of time, you know, looking into the different nooks and crannies, even, you know, compounds that we think to be associated with other things, let's just say omega-3s, you know, I, I wrote an article not long ago about the fact that, you know, omega-3 intake and omega-3 status is actually correlated with microbiome status. And it's perhaps possible that part of the anti-inflammatory effect of omega-3s is the benefit it has for the gut microbiome, right? So it's, again, it's like no matter where you look, there's going to be something there. And yeah, and again, that's what drives my interest in this area. And to be fair, I'll just say this as well. There are a lot of people out there, and you've likely interviewed a great deal of them, who know much more about the gut microbiome than I do. But my kind of specialty is understanding how it interacts with people's issues in a pragmatic way and to help them understand on that level how they can enhance it, modify it to their benefit for their specific health concerns. Like that's where I really shine. And again, yeah, it's, it's obviously a massively complicated issue. And I don't want to oversimplify it either. Okay. So both food and lifestyle factors obviously contribute to our microbiome status, you know, whether that's a healthy gut microbiome or an imbalanced one. So I want to break these down a little bit more. I'm not sure how much you know about the fact that I talk about 24-7, my three pillars to gut healing. The first is diagnosis, the second is diet, and the third is lifestyle. I believe that you have to have all three of those in order to fully heal. So that's why, obviously, the diagnosis is a whole beast in and of itself. But that's why I tend to, when I talk to guests on my show, I really want to break down their thoughts and ideas around the food aka diet and the lifestyle factors. So let's start with food. And I would love if you could share in your experiences what you think the top five-ish foods for the gut microbiome are and why. Yeah, that's a great question. So let's see where we're going to begin. Well, I'm going to pick you know, a legume as part of this because legumes are, are very high in prebiotic fiber, which we know is preferentially broken down by gut bacteria. So let's just say a lentil or a chickpea. I'm going to pick that. 
I will pick, given the uh, the knowledge I just shared about omega-3 fatty acids potentially having a prebiotic effect as well, I'll pick salmon, which is a uniquely rich source of the uh, you know DHA and EPA. So I think that works well. I am going to also pick green tea, which is a, you know incredibly rich source of various polyphenol compounds. Um, which is just a fancy way to say, you know, anti- unique antioxidants. And I know there's research, you know, in this area and, and polyphenols may actually have unique benefits to the gut microbiome. So I'm going to pick that as well. Let's then pick, well, I'm going to pick asparagus because asparagus also has prebiotic fiber. And, you know, I guess prebiotic fiber is relatively elusive and, I, you, you know, and there's nuance there as well, you know, as, so we, that's something we can discuss. And then finally, let's pick oatmeal as a source of soluble fiber which uh, generally is uh, very useful for the digestive tract too. This is a really hard question, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, those are so great though. And what's interesting is it's hard because there are definitely more than five, obviously, but it's also hard because depending on your background and your clients you've worked with and the different conditions you've seen, you have a different perspective. But what I love is that people can really just take and use what works best for them. And I fully agree with all five of yours. Now, something that is interesting, you kept saying it over and over, is you mentioned about the prebiotic fiber. And in the gutsy community, I'm sure you are very well aware of this, people get really nervous when they hear that word fiber. I used to be one of them when I had SIBO and I was absolutely miserable. I thought, okay, never again am I going to eat fiber. I'm going to live on meat, fat, and broth the rest of my life. And this is how I'm going to heal. And this is just going to be life. And I think very, very, very differently today. But I know there are still people that are so afraid of it and so stuck and really wanting to understand more. So you recently did a post on Instagram and it was all about dietary fiber versus fermented foods. So can you break them down? Tell us a little bit about the differences and also what you personally wish more people knew about both of them. I'll say one thing as well, you know, you're absolutely right. The context is everything. You know, I speak about the microbiome from the perspective of an otherwise healthy person who would like to optimize it. And if you throw in disease conditions or disease states, it changes a lot. So 100%. Now, okay, so on to that article. So fortunately enough, there was a piece written, uh, published rather in the Cell Journal that looked at, you know, people who consumed either foods high in fiber or fermented foods. So the foods high in fiber, nuts and seeds, various types of vegetables, and then the fermented foods, things like kombucha, kimchi, which contain these various types of healthy bacteria. So we can think of it in these terms. Fiber in some ways acts as, especially prebiotic fiber, acts as food for the gut bacteria, particularly the good gut bacteria that allows them to flourish. And what they found was that people who increase the fiber intake in their diet, they increase the density in their gut microbiome. So, and, and the total volume of the bacteria and how closely they work together. Now, my understanding is that that enhances their functionality and digestive tract. People who consume fermented foods, again, and these foods have various types of healthy bacteria in them, they then experience an increase in the diversity in their gut microbiome. And then in turn, that increases the amount of short-chain fatty acids, which are beneficial compounds that bacteria produce, and it reduces the amount of inflammation. And those are the two effects that these things had together. Now, diversity in the gut microbiome is a term that I probably overuse, and I know it's much more complicated than how I state it, but generally, it's a good thing because that means there's more and different types of beneficial bacteria, and different types of bacteria create different types of compounds and interact with the body in different ways. 
And of course, also they outcompete, uh, let's say, the bad bacteria and they keep your gut microbiome in a good state. And so it's reasonable for an otherwise healthy person who really wants to, let's say, give themselves some more uh, health percentage points to pursue various types of high fiber foods, and then, you know, as well to pursue fermented foods if they enjoy them. I absolutely love that. And so what I took from that as the two main keywords, one is fiber correlated with density in the gut microbiome and the fermented foods is the diversity in the gut microbiome. Yes. I'm wondering if this is the same study. I actually had couple episodes ago, Dr. Pedre was on my show. And I feel like he was talking about this exact same study because was it like a fiber versus fermented food study? It was following groups of individuals who then made a, a significant change in their diet in a specific direction, right? And then they observed the differential changes in the gut microbiome after those specific interventions. So what happens to someone when they increase their fermented food intake? What happens to someone when they increase their fiber intake relative to what they were doing previously? Okay. Yeah. Cause this could be the same one because what we kept talking about was it's kind of a odd study too. It's like, well, they're both good. Why, why would we do one versus the, you know what I mean? So I love that. So let's say then someone listening to this is, you know, maybe just has a little bit of dysbiosis going on or, you know, nothing that is too severe. They're not like in full disease state with inflammatory bowel disease. And they're thinking about the differences between fiber and fermented foods and maybe incorporating a little bit here and there. Do you think there is definitely a place to add both in small quantities? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important to be clear about the fact that, look, foods high in fiber are inevitably also the foods that contain a lot of other beneficial compounds, right? So as cool as you know these studies are for those who are interested in fermented foods, and they certainly are cool, when we look at high fiber foods like nuts, legumes, vegetables, the nutritional value of these foods is immense. So really, when it comes to if it's a choice, for me, it's not a choice. You know what I mean? It's not a choice. There's one food group that is you know, obviously significantly more essential to human health. However, what I see the value of the study is there's obviously curiosity about the role fermented foods play in human health. And this study shows some cool outcomes in that area. So for people who are on the fence about incorporating these foods or they like these foods and they're unsure about them, it gives them that little bit of knowledge, understanding and, and self-efficacy around those foods. That's why I like to reference the study. It's not because it draws a line between the two families of foods. In fact, I think it sheds both in a positive light and also enhances our general knowledge understanding of how these foods interact with the gut. Yeah, it definitely does shed them both in a positive light. And to that extent, the one thing that I always tell people, people are always wondering, like, how did you get to a place where you're eating so much fiber and fermented foods? And I will say that one, I fully healed. And so that's how I have the massive quantities that I do of them today. But in the beginning, when I got over the fear of them and started to really educate myself and learn about what they truly were and how they could help me, I never had them in bulk quantities. So even if it was, let's say, kimchi, instead of eating you know, two tablespoons of full kimchi, I started out with just some of the liquid. Or if it was lentils, it was a fourth of a cup cooked and fully cooked and prepared appropriately versus now today I will eat like an entire bowl. So there's a way to slowly start incorporating it so your body's not in shock mode. Yeah, of course being incremental around anything that, you know, you're uncomfortable or uncertain about is totally reasonable. And yeah, of course it totally depends on the individual. Someone with a, a history of digestive health concerns, I fully appreciate that there's a little bit more nuance to that. Absolutely. 
Okay, so we talked about fiber, and obviously these are plant foods. So I would love your thoughts around plant foods and high-quality animal-based foods like grass-fed meat. So what is your opinion on them and how they relate to overall intestinal or the microbiome health? I think that these are two very different types of foods with very different profiles in terms of what they have to offer. Plant-based food, you know, again, you're talking fruits, vegetables, legumes, nuts and seeds, and everywhere you turn, these foods are associated with better health outcomes or good health outcomes rather. I don't mean that to say better than meat or grass-fed beef. Now, what grass-fed beef offers is also unique and beef generally is unique as well. You know, so beef obviously has creatine, carnitine, compounds that are not necessarily found in other foods, large amounts of iron. So for me, it's a question of not one or the other. It's acknowledging that there is a very differential uh, benefits to either. They contain different types of things. And that certainly you can have a strong dietary pattern that includes both. For me, it's not a question of one or the other. It's pretty much all of the above and understanding that there's unique benefits to be had you know, for each of these. And, and, and how can we incorporate them for an individual in a way that fits for them and not to demonize to say you have to eat in a plant-based way to enhance your microbiome or certainly you know, I know that when it comes to pure meat diets, and I know that floats around a little bit on social media through some celebrities, there's a lot out there about the potentially negative effects on the gut microbiome. So it's really not one or the other. On a personal question, do you eat all of it? Or are you diagnostic? Is there anything that you tend to lean more towards because of all your research, you believe that this is the best for you. I always am curious with experts. <laughs> so this is like kind of like a grand reveal of sorts, but okay, okay there's a little bit of background here. So Pretty much, I was, let's say, omnivorous for most of my life, aka just ate whatever. Then I wrote a, uh, I got offered to write a, a pescatarian book, cookbook. And I was like, well, it's not very ethical for me to say I'm pescatarian if I'm not just to write this book. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to be pescatarian for a bit. So then I was pretty much exclusively pescatarian for a few years. And now I'm mostly pescatarian, but I was, I was away. Uh, I was in Florida in December and I had, I had beef almost every day when I went for dinner, you know, so I'm mostly pescatarian, but I also appreciate that. I like beef. I appreciate that. It has Like I said, it has unique compounds, unique benefits. I've been funny enough, low in iron earlier in my life and not to say beef is the only source of iron. Of course, it's obviously a good source. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty go off the flow. You know what I mean? Pescatarianism primarily works for me, but I will have beef, especially at a restaurant because uh, it tastes better than at home. And that just makes me happy. I do think that when we listen to our bodies, in terms of what they need and what it needs at any given point, it really does know. So when you're in Florida and there's all, you know, beef or whatever, you're like, okay, yeah, that, like this makes sense right now. There's no, I have to stick to pescatarian because that's what I've always done. So I love that point of view. For me, I, you know, I like fish enough that um, I can pull that off. I like, you know, uh, you know, fish, eggs and other plant protein sources enough. And if someone doesn't, then that's okay, you know. And you'll notice that I speak a lot about the value of plant-based foods, and I like to push people in that direction because my assessment is that on the whole, if I pluck an average person, if I just pluck a random person off the streets, I'm willing to bet that diversifying their protein intake is going to be a path forward to better health for them, okay? AKA, can we have a mix of marine, plant, and animal-based protein rather than more primarily animal-based protein? I'm pretty confident in that statement. So that's where a lot of that sentiment comes from. So people need to be aware of the benefits of plant-based foods, but not the exclusion of other foods. It's not about being vegan or vegetarian. It's, I've never pushed that on anyone, both privately or publicly. It's more so pursuing diversity in your protein intake. And I think that would resolve a lot of people's health concerns, in my opinion. I actually fully, fully, fully agree with that. Okay, so 
I know that there's no foods that you think are off limits and I don't either, but are there any foods that you would consider to be the worst foods for gut health that you have seen time and time again that people just do not do well with and that ultimately contribute to even poorer state of gut health? I, first of all, yes, agree with what you said there. And to your point, I mean, look, when we look at the ultra processed family of foods, processed meats, heavily processed packaged, packaged goods, you know, there's definitely a correlation there between the consumption of those foods and like a poor state of the gut microbiome. But look, we also have to balance that with the fact that if on the whole, you're consuming a, you know, a robust, diverse diet, if you know you want to have a, a hot dog on a Sunday in the summer, that's not going to disrupt your gut microbiome, right? We have to be honest about that. Now, if one's diet is largely based off those foods, they're definitely going to be at a disadvantage. And the gut microbiome is very likely the least of the concerns at that point. Realistically, there's a lot of other things that can go on, but it would probably have to be the family of foods that you know scientists refer to as ultra-processed, which are the most negatively associated with the gut microbiome. But to be fair, those are negatively associated with most health conditions as well. I actually recorded an entire solo episode all about processed foods. I actually even broke down the government's terms and the distinction between ultra-processed foods, processed foods. And so I'll make sure to link to that in the show notes because One thing that I do find is very common from expert to expert is that instead of saying, okay, these are the top five worst foods, they do exactly as you just did, which is really the category. And the category always comes back to any type of food that's overly processed. So like you said, the meats, snacks, packaged foods, anything like that. I wanted to do an episode all about it to really help people understand what that means. Yeah, no, that's, I'm, I'm going to have to listen to that. That sounds actually pretty epic. And, and if I had to, honestly, uh, I'm going to take a step forward. If I had to pick one, given, you know, I like to look at trends in disease outcomes. And obviously, colorectal cancer is a disease of the digestive tract. It is both relatively common and relatively fatal relatively to some other more innocuous ones. And there's a big connection between colorectal cancer and processed meat, the sausages, the salami, the ham, and, and those types of foods because of the high sodium, high preservative content, so on and so forth. So if I had to pick one, I'd say that those probably would be up there. Do you guys have bologna in Canada? When I was growing up, that was absolutely a thing. I mean, I probably just haven't been to that section of the grocery store in a while, maybe. I don't know. I mean, I'm pretty sure we have it. You know, it's, I'm just joking around a little bit, but that would definitely fall into that category. I'm definitely not trying to make light of this at all, because anyone who knows me knows it was like the biggest tragedy of my life. But my father passed away from colon cancer. And this was just in 2019. So it's still pretty fresh. But yeah, so you you say that whatever you say the processed meats. And the first thing I think of is literally every single breakfast, and he would even bring it for lunch and whatever, bologna. And you know how we would do it, he would, (laughs) we would make toast. So it was nice and warm, put peanut butter and jelly on it, which would, you know, melt it very nicely. And then he would fry up the bologna. And we would make these sandwiches and they were absolutely delicious, but I cannot tell you how much processed meat I ate growing up. It's no one's fault. We didn't know better, right? But like, it's so true. I'm such a stickler with meat, such a stickler with meat now because I know that connection and I know what outcomes can happen. So yes, thank you for saying that. Yeah, of course. You certainly like reflect on it, you know, in a gracious way. And then, you know, that's going to, you know, propel your, your work going forward, right? So, you know, I I certainly respect that. All right. So if a client comes to you with a major condition, any major condition, is there a specific approach you like to take from a diet standpoint in helping manage symptoms in the short term and or in the long term? Okay. So there's obviously 
a wide array of potential conditions that someone could see me or any dietitian for. But in terms of my approach, I think my baseline approach, you know, whether we're talking short term or long term, is starting with a comprehensive understanding of kind of what's going wrong, helping making sure they understand what their condition entails. Okay. And then from there, understanding how specific foods, you know, whether if I know the specific mechanisms or if I if it's just a question of the best available evidence, under helping them understand why certain foods will make it better. And then of course from there we go into, you know, customization and reconciling you know, my desire for them to eat these foods with their personal life and preferences. So I would say that would be the three-step process, perhaps not dissimilar to your own uh, three-step process. Yeah. When you said what's wrong, that's really the diagnosis piece. It's really hard to craft all of the things if we don't even know what's wrong. It's like just shooting anything in midair. And so, yeah, I completely agree with all of that. And of course, as well, it's like, how I frame it is there is dietary optimization, which is, you know, making sure you're eating the right foods in the right array. There is obviously physical activity, and then there is strategic supplementation. So when I'm thinking about things in terms of how can I affect a condition, how can I affect someone with fatty liver disease, which by the way has a significant microbiome component, which is why there's a large amount of evidence that probiotics help improve outcomes for fatty liver. My most recent book was on fatty liver, and fatty liver affects up to one in three people in North America. So it's a very salient issue. And the perfect example how the gut microbiome affects just about everything, right? So those are the three pillars I look at in terms of giving feedback. Now, obviously, the physical activity side, I'm not a personal trainer, so that's more so, listen, you know, physical activity is probably going to help. See what you can do about that. But I'm really more so on diet first. And then if there is high-level evidence about supplementation and the role that plays, I'll certainly share that or, or share my writing on that with clients so they can make informed decisions. Okay. So speaking of that, and just on the physical part of it, let's move on to talk a little bit about lifestyle. We've been talking a ton about diet and I do think it's very important, but my third pillar is lifestyle. And I always say in the long term, in the long run, it is the most important pillar because it's the one that is the hardest to really quote unquote overcome or to engage with or to unengage with. And so I would love if you could just share a few lifestyle factors that someone could remove or add or change to see increased health benefits for the digestive system. Yeah. Okay. So let's start with sleep, which I'll be honest, I'm real bad about. I was really fascinated to see. So I, I wrote a piece on the interaction between sleep quality and sleep duration and the microbiome a few months ago, and it did quite well in terms of you know engagement, stuff like that. And essentially... There's a correlation between sleep quality and sleep duration and microbiome diversity. And again, oversimplification, yeah, but as like a general thing to strive for, I think one in three Americans sleep under seven hours a night, and that's called short sleep duration. So committing to more consistent sleeping patterns, and obviously there's numerous benefits to that, of course, that's one of the things that you could do right off the bat to improve the state of your gut microbiome. Further to that, of course, physical activity, right? There's tons of studies that show, for example, athletes and physically active people have more favorable microbiome profiles than, let's say, more, let's say, sedentary people. So again, to what extent are you able to engage in more physical activity in whatever form that looks like for you? That's obviously going to be beneficial. Then, of course, you can get into some negative things and perhaps some that are avoidable, some that are unavoidable, nicotine use smoking, alcohol, antibiotic use, which of course, not always avoidable because for various factors, you know, a lot of those are stress, 
you know, mindfulness practice, things like yoga, meditation. Yoga is a great example of meshing the worlds of mindfulness and, you know, mental calm with actual physical activity. So those are the areas that I would look into for someone who is really trying to just check every box they can from the lifestyle perspective. Yeah. And I love those. The stress piece is the one that everyone always wants to talk about because it's such a hard one to overcome. I actually, you mentioned yoga. I started going to yoga again and I'm so proud of myself because yoga is one of those things that for, I find in the gutsy community, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of type A women like myself. And yoga is one of those activities that can be very hard to get yourself to. And so I will fall out of a practice for quite some time, but now I've fallen back into it and I absolutely love it. Like you're right, just the connection between mind and body and you're moving, but not too much. And that's another thing that on the physical side of all of this is moving, but not to a extreme amount, especially if you're faced with any sort of disease and yeah, just like really honing in on all of the things that we can do to reduce stress and to just calm, <laughs> find calm. I'll say something else about yoga because I've been doing yoga. No, I'm not very good. I've been doing yoga once a week for the last 10 or 15 years. So I'll go to classes like hot yoga, all that stuff. And I've actually, I've seen studies that show that yoga practice can actually reduce inflammatory markers. Now I bring this up because I know people are very fascinated by the concept of inflammation, inflammatory markers. And look, I'm not going to the yoga studio thinking, oh, my CRP is going down after this. I primarily do yoga because I'm pretty tight. I play soccer. It's good for injury recovery. And it's kind of more chill than going to the gym. But for those who are interested and need that little extra boost, like ooh, inflammation, yo, that's going to be there too. And look, I'll say this, not that this is a pro yoga chat, but I think it's relevant. I tell my clients this all the time. Like you don't have to go to a yoga class if you're not comfortable. You know, YouTube is your best friend. 20 minute beginner yoga at home. Cool. And then, you know, the games begin. I got started doing at home 20 minute uh, yoga DVDs by Rodney Yee. So shout out to to Rodney. I don't know if he's still doing yoga and making uh, content in that area now, but that's how I got started. You know, when DVDs were still a thing, that's how long ago that was. I think that's a point that merits uh, that little bit of extra exploration. Yeah, I think I should have a really big yoga expert on the show to talk all about yoga and the digestive benefits for it. There's so many even like basic twists and stuff that we do in yoga that are so good for the digestive system. So I could talk about it for a really long time, which is why I should just do an entire episode about it. Okay, one more thing though, as it relates to lifestyle that I wanted to mention, you had said a couple times different supplements and the one that you really made a correlation with the gut microbiome would be the omega-3s, DHA and EPA. And in fact, people always ask me why in my starting lineup of supplements, I put that one in there. And that's exactly why from an inflammation standpoint, all the things, omega-3 is fantastic. But besides that, are there any supplements that you tend to use a lot in your practice just for, I would say, mostly gut related and or for reducing overall inflammation? The thing with omega-3s is that I kind of refer to them as elusive, which is why you know it does make sense to bring up as a topic of interest for supplementation because the foods that have the long chain omega-3s, EPA and DHA, you know, there's very few. We're talking basically salmon, mackerel, trout, sardines, and some other fatty fish, right? It's very easy for people not to like or not to eat those foods regularly, right? Of course, omega-3s of different types are found in plant-based foods, but you know that's neither here nor there, the extent to which those can have the same effect on human health. Vitamin D, of course, is another thing that's found largely in fatty fish. So vitamin D and omega-3 are often found in the same foods. And again, especially where we are located in the world, I guess, Midwest, Northeast, 
you know, sun is an issue for a large part of the year, right? So vitamin D and omega-3 become quite relevant. Now, from there, you know, it all depends on the individual because probiotics obviously have a role to play for the right person. Again, I brought up fatty liver disease and fatty liver disease is a very hot topic and people talk about all sorts of supplements for fatty liver disease like milk, thistle and all sorts of stuff. But the one supplement, and I know this because I've done a large amount of research in this area, the one supplement that is the most well-studied, the most well-supported in terms of human evidence to have a meaningful impact on fatty liver is probiotics. There's emerging evidence that probiotics can help improve A1C for people living with type 2 diabetes and prediabetes because the gut microbiome plays a role in glucose metabolism, which is just a fancy way to say it affects how your body interacts with carbohydrates, right? And of course, carbohydrates are what influence your blood sugar. So probiotics for the right person, prebiotic fiber for the right person, right? Of course, put a star beside that for the right person. You know, there's good evidence that prebiotic fiber often combined with probiotics can have an even better effect. So it really depends on the individual. Obviously, you mentioned inflammation. Well, you know, curcumin is most likely the most potent anti-inflammatory compound based on the work I've seen and the dietary anti-inflammatory index. So that's obviously a topic of interest that's quite well studied. And then it goes from there. You know, even ashwagandha, which I've not seen directly linked with gut health, but certainly linked with stress reduction. And then you talk about the interaction with stress and gut health. So it all depends on the individual, their unique set of characteristics, their interest level and supplementation. I will say that very often, I love writing and talking about supplements. And we think about even supplements for psyllium fiber, sorry, also, by the way, another very uh, common one. I love talking about it, but the effect is very likely going to be much less than diet and lifestyle change. But nonetheless, for the right person, the right supplement can make a meaningful health difference. And there's a little question about that. So that was a bit of a ramble as well. No, thank you. That was so good. Echo all of those. I do tend to talk a lot about the stress, like the ashwagandha and stuff like that, because it is so connected to gut health because of the stressful lives that we lead and how that then it's just like a trickle effect, right? So one thing then affects the next, which affects the next. So if we can manage the stress, then we can manage the gut better. If we can, you know, all the things and they, how they all just are intertwined and go together. So I love that. Okay, so you are not afraid to talk about the bowel movements on the old gram. Neither am I. I'm pretty passionate about it because I do believe that when you really understand the Bristol stool scale and you are comfortable with knowing your own body, it is such an incredible indicator of what is going on and the kind of help that you might need. And so I just am really appreciative when anyone wants to talk about it. So do you have any advice for lifestyle factors to help with regular bowel movements? Do you have any thoughts around that? The funny thing is, one of the first things my clients report when they come back after seeing me the first time is that their bowel movements improve. So it just goes to show the massive potential that that has to improve with some dietary modification. From a lifestyle perspective, you know, I think, you know, getting the body, getting that blood flowing, getting the body moving, obviously is going to be very useful. It's going to come down to very similar things. It's going to come down to physical activity. It's going to come down to adequate water consumption, which I suppose we can consider lifestyle. It's going to come down to sleep. And then I don't know if you bunch supplements into that lifestyle category, but something like psyllium fiber has, you know, and I'm not saying anyone needs to take fiber supplement to have regular bowel movements. Something like psyllium fiber is quite well studied to help with bowel movements, regardless of which end they are on the Bristol scale as well, right? It helps to form them better independent of uh, the issue. So those are some things that come to mind, but I think it's got to be, you know, movement and water intake have to be up there. 
just because of the role they play in, you know, getting the blood flowing to the digestive tract and getting things. Obviously, fiber interacts with water. And so, you know, you want to leverage that and you want to make sure your water consumption is adequate and so on and so forth. But I think the real good stuff comes from the diet, but that also depends on someone's baseline health concerns too. One thing that I think is interesting, you said you had mentioned about sleep and how obviously getting good sleep can help with regular bowel movements. One supplement that people talk about all the time for bowel movements is magnesium. Well, there's so many different forms of magnesium. And when they're talking about the actual urgent, I have to go magnesium, it's the citrate. That's the form of magnesium that will help you go immediately. However, when I came out with my own magnesium, I put it in the biglycinate form because you take that at night before you go to bed to help with sleep, calm, and relaxation, which then leads to, like you just said, better sleep. You wake up in the morning and typically people have better or more frequent bowel movements because all of those other factors have gone into play versus just a real quick one-off, I have to go to the bathroom. That's fascinating. I mean, that's something that I, um, I'm less familiar with, but that's a very cool approach. And obviously, like magnesium supplementation is such a popular topic too. And I know that the various forms are tolerated in different ways. And I've heard anecdotally that this glycinate, if I've pronounced that correctly, is actually better tolerated as well in terms of like being easier on the, the digestive tract and so on. So uh, that's very interesting. Yes, it actually is easier to tolerate. It's easier on the digestive system. And so that's why that's the form we have. Okay, moving on. So we are going to start wrapping up this show because we've been already talking for 45 minutes. Time flies. I know. You're <laughs> a blast to talk to. Everything is just so much fun. And I love these different perspectives that you have brought to the show today. So I know you have a private practice, but I would love if you could just share with the audience how we can find and connect with you, your Instagram, your website, whatever it is. So yeah, my Instagram, my website would be the primary way. So it's Andy VRD for both. So andyvrd.com. If you want to go straight to the writing, you can do andyvrd.com, you know, forward slash blog. And then just andyvrd on Instagram. Those are the two places where I put out the most stuff, the most content. And uh, I'm trying to do more video content on Instagram too. So you can hear me talk a little bit more if that's, uh, if you enjoy hearing me talk here today. And thank you so much for having me, by the way. This is lovely. Gosh, I every single week, I'm like, okay, I'm going to do more video. I'm going to do more video. I'm going to do more video. And then it's Friday and I'm like, and I didn't do more video. Uh, it's like, I want to be able to meet people wherever they're at with all these different mediums and forms and trying to be as helpful and useful as possible. But it's just like, there's so many things to do now, you know? A hundred percent. Content is just a never ending hamster wheel. It really is. And I mentioned, you know, how, how I was the best of sleep. And for the longest time, I'm like, oh, I always look tired. I always look tired. I don't want to make video, but I'm just over that now. I'm just going to make the videos. And obviously, look, you know, you have this wonderful podcast. You know, your Instagram is great as well. So I think you're maxing out, you're, you know, optimizing your efforts, right? So you're doing good. Okay. So at the end of my interviews, I always ask my guests for their three convictions around gut health and gut healing. For reference, mine are heal your gut, heal your life, everything is beautiful in its time, and no one will ever advocate for your health in the ways that you can. Show up and glow up for you. So Andy, what are your convictions around gut health and gut healing? I think I have one that stands above the rest. I'll say that first. Generally, my philosophy in this area and for general health as well is that for the most part, you get healthy by what you do, not by what you don't do. So I'm going to say that's that number one. Second thing is that I believe that for the majority of people pursuing variety in their protein intake, and in fact, variety in their intake of all foods is beneficial. 
because of how different foods have different compounds that interact with the gut microbiome in different ways. Like I said, asparagus is rich in prebiotic fiber, green tea is rich in polyphenols, and so on and so forth. And quite honestly, I was going to see if it was going to come natural to me. I'm going to say I don't really have a third one. I'm just going to be quite content with those two. Well, those two are just perfect and fantastic. Sometimes people only have one and it's just really about what you believe and just to give people like the overview of who you are, what you believe. And yeah, I love it. I think those two really encapsulate everything I'm about funny enough. There's nuance there, but I think they're pretty good. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Andy. And to you out there, thank you for joining us. And I will see you again next time. 